With the highest number of young STEM graduates per capita in the EU, Ireland has the people and skills your company needs to succeed here. IDA Ireland, the National Investment Development Agency, can help you find and nurture the people you need to internationalise and thrive. Our talent is just one of the extraordinary benefits Ireland has to offer. Learn more at idaireland.com. Invest in extraordinary. The Economist. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. When a moon lander called Peregrine 1 started to flounder shortly after launch, it might have dashed hopes for a triumphant return to the lunar surface. Not necessarily, says our correspondent, there was good news mixed in with the bad. And the word geisha conjures white faces, flowing kimonos, and extreme decorum. But this entertainer's profession is changing, and fast. Geishas host drinking sessions on Zoom, they run cocktail bars. And all that may keep the tradition alive. First up, though... Over the past year, curbing inflation has been top of mind for lots of central banks, America's Federal Reserve among them. Jerome Powell, the chair of the Fed, has repeatedly reminded Americans that he's on the task. Tight policy is putting downward pressure on economic activity and inflation. But in we have to get inflation down to 2%, and we will. And we just don't see that yet. But high inflation imposes significant hardship as it erodes purchasing power, especially for those least... So the inflation numbers due to come out today are eagerly awaited. A year ago, the consumer price index was above 6%, but it's been falling and falling, at the same time, somewhat perplexingly, as America's economy has grown and grown. Today, we decided to leave our policy interest rate unchanged, while we believe that our policy rate is likely at or near its peak for this tightening cycle. The economy has surprised forecasters in many ways. Consumers and borrowers and investors might be tempted to breathe a sigh of relief here. The Fed has cautiously suggested that interest rate rises may finally be over. But let's not get too hasty. In 2023, many economists had thought that America would be in recession or flirting with recession. Simon Rabinovich is our U.S. economics editor. The latest data show that probably for the full year it will have grown about 2.5%. That's a very strong performance at this point in the economic cycle for the country. And if anything, the performance actually accelerated as the year went on, truly defying expectations for a slowdown in growth. Having said that, at some point, it's inevitable that growth will disappoint expectations. Well, before we get to the inevitable, let's talk about the interim success. What's going on behind that? Well, the strength is really broad-based. Uh, you can look at a few different things that have fed into it. So partly it has been Biden administration policy, big subsidies for 
electric vehicles and for the semiconductor industry, that has catalyzed a lot of investment in manufacturing. The property sector has been a big surprise in that mortgage rates went up quite dramatically last year as interest rates increased. You would have thought that would lead to a big slowdown in the property sector. In fact, there's a real lack of availability of single-family homes. So property developers have continued to construct homes, continued to, in fact, ramp up construction of homes. Um, So that's been a big support. But most important of all has been the indomitable American consumer. American consumers have kept on spending money, and that has been a huge, huge support for the economy as a whole. But at the same time, there has been this long-running story about inflation in America as elsewhere. That has not stopped American consumers from the sound of things. No, and it's somewhat surprising in the sense that, of course, things have been getting a lot more expensive. If you look at consumer sentiment surveys, Americans have been quite pessimistic about the state of things. But if you look at the actual revealed behavior, what people have been doing, they've been spending money with spending increasing in real terms. And there are two factors that explain why the American consumer has been so resilient. Number one, they accumulated a lot of savings over the course of the pandemic. First of all, spending was quite restrained back in 2020, 2021, when so many things were shut down. But also at the same time, they were receiving big stimulus checks, very rich unemployment insurance support. That led to a big buffer of excess savings. By some estimates, it had reached as much as you know roughly $2 trillion. That's about 10% of American GDP. That's been whittled down over time, but American consumers are probably still sitting on you know roughly $300 billion of excess savings. That has been a big support. The second big factor is that although inflation has been very high, It, of course, has slowed a fair bit over the past year. Headline inflation was running at as high as 9% in 2022, down to about 3% now. What that means in real terms is that wages have actually been increasing, and the pace of increase has been rising as well in recent months. So American households have more to spend than they thought they would have had a few months ago. So all of that has made for more resilient consumption than had been the baseline forecast for most economists. So this seems to be the unexpected outcome of inflation fading, even as growth is sort of charging ahead here. But you kind of hinted that at some point the party might might come to an end. Yeah, I mean, so nobody knows exactly if the party will end or how it will end, but I think it's a fair bet to say that it can't quite continue as good as it's been so far. I mean, really, we've been looking at a best of both worlds scenario where growth has been incredibly resilient and yet inflation has been fading. But if you look at why inflation has been fading, to a big extent, America has been a beneficiary, as other countries have, of the healing of supply chains post-pandemic. And so you've had outright disinflation or rather You've had outright deflation of goods prices. But if you look under the hood at broader price measures in America, services inflation, so prices for things like transportation, hospital care, housing rents, those have been somewhat more stubborn. And in fact, as the months go forward, you'd expect that the goods deflation will basically run its course as supplies get back to normal. And so you'll then be in a situation where inflation has not fully got back to the Fed's target of 2%. Therefore, it may have to keep interest rates somewhat higher than markets are currently banking on. 
And that, in turn, will lead to a somewhat more disappointing growth performance in 2024 than 2023. We're probably not looking at the kind of recession that people had been expecting a year ago. But equally, if people are expecting the strong growth to continue uninterrupted, that is unlikely this year. So what is it we should be looking out for then to figure out which of these fates America is going to be living through? Well, I mean, look, at the big thing to watch is how the Federal Reserve interprets all the different data points in front of it. And there's been a really interesting back and forth over the last month where when they had the last meeting to decide on rates back in mid-December, markets came out incredibly optimistic, which led into quite a strong rally to end the year, in large part because Jerome Powell, chairman of the Federal Reserve, said that, look, we might be in a position where we can cut rates, even though growth is still relatively strong simply because inflation has been melting away. And so to avoid having rates being unduly restrictive, you then have a pathway to cutting rates. But soon after that, another really important figure in the Fed universe, John Williams, the president of the New York Fed, said, whoa, 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 it's way too premature even to be thinking about rate cuts. His point being that, look, there's still so much uncertainty because services inflation is still much higher than goods inflation The Fed may, in fact, want to press pause before it starts to do anything quite drastic. And you've had the market then price in some of that pessimism really to start this new year. You see markets correcting the rally at the end of 2023 has fizzled out. And I think that's just an indication of how much uncertainty there is right now about the data, both in terms of the data itself, but also how the Fed itself is reading that data. So there will be a meeting at the end of this month where Powell will have another chance to digest all of the data that has been playing out. But I think for the time being, it's fair to to say that things are kind of never as good or as bad as they first seem. And although America did do a good job of avoiding a recession last year, I think this kind of strength to strength quarter after quarter growth that we've seen will not persist this year. Simon, thanks very much for your time. Thank you, Jason. With the highest number of young STEM graduates per capita in the EU, Ireland has the people and skills your company needs to succeed here. IDA Ireland, the National Investment Development Agency, can help you find and nurture the people you need to internationalise and thrive. Our talent is just one of the extraordinary benefits Ireland has to offer. Learn more at idaireland.com. Invest in Extraordinary. Go Vulcan. Go Vulcan. Go Centaur. Go Peregrine. Godspeed ULA. Seven. Godspeed Astrobotic. Five. Four. Three. We have ignition. Seven. And liftoff of the first United Launch Alliance Vulcan rocket, launching a new era in spaceflight to the moon and beyond. On Monday morning, America tried for the first time in more than 50 years to launch a spacecraft designed to touch down gently on the moon. Oliver Morton is our planetary affairs editor and the author of the book The Moon, A History for the Future. The new Vulcan Centaur rocket launched from Cape Canaveral in the middle of the night. Indeed, rather as Apollo 17, the last American moon landing mission had done 51 years ago. Its solid rocket boosters lit up the night sky, 
Wow. And it was carrying up into orbit a moon lander made by a small company called Astrobotic based in Pittsburgh. Coming up on 60 seconds into the flight, everything looking good. Two good engines. It's called Peregrine One, which is a new approach to moon landing, not because it uses a new technology, but because it uses a new business model. This was meant to be a truck that would deliver a bunch of experiments to the surface of the moon on behalf of NASA. Supersonic coming up on MaxQ. And how did the launch out of the mission go? The first bits went absolutely beautifully. Everything looking good. We're rolling off on the SRBs. This is a new rocket made by United Launch Alliance, which is a joint venture of Boeing and Lockheed, which was originally conceived of to sell the rockets those two aerospace giants already made. There's that Methalox Blue. This is the first rocket that ULA has itself developed. And we're watching the the launch video here. Um, Having grown up in Florida, I've seen quite a few of these before. What's, What's different about this one? When the rocket launches by a few minutes in, when you're looking down the booster just at its main engines, you're seeing this quite spooky blue flame. This is so beautiful. Look at that blue. That's just... Looks like Max is still and that's because the first stage uses two rockets made by another company, Blue Origin, which burn methane in an oxygen-rich combustion chamber so that you get a very, very pure exhaust. You're getting this very blue line from the product of the methane combustion. There go the SRBs. Separation of both SRBs. Oh, I just got to separation while you were talking there. Oh, and now, yeah. There we go. Look at that. I, I don't even know what to say. This is exceptional. Down the center of the range track. So we've spent a lot of time talking about uh, the, the rocket that got things into the sky, but things didn't go entirely to plan after that, from what I've understood. Absolutely. The Peregrine mission, this lunar lander, basically a valve got stuck, which led to the fact that its propulsion system wouldn't work properly. They found a way to work around that, but... In doing so, they discovered that they didn't have the propulsion system, wasn't going to work properly, and they were going to have to abandon any attempt to land on the moon. And the rocket is still heading for the moon, but it will run out of maneuvering capability, and then it will be a sad, dead thing flying around in space for a very, very long time. Oh, man. Thank you for anthropomorphizing there. I was I was untroubled by this until now. <laughs> So, I mean, a mix of success, but ultimately failure for this bid to get back to the surface of the moon, right? Yeah, if you see this purely as a moon mission, then, yeah, not getting to the moon is uh, is almost a definition of failure. But if you see this as the first flight of a new rocket, which many people in America are quite enthusiastic about, then big success. The rocket itself, the Vulcan Centaur, worked really, as they say in the business, nominally. And that's especially good if you're someone in the U.S. government who needs to launch spy satellites and other sort of like national security hardware. Because at the moment, you either have the rockets that ULA isn't making anymore, that it has a few of in stock, or you have to use the Falcon or the Falcon 9 or Falcon Heavy from SpaceX. And you never really want to be reliant on just one company for something of vital national security importance. And I think it's fair to say that when that company is run by Elon Musk, your worries on such accounts probably go up. 
But what about the bids to get back to the moon? We've been hearing about a lot of missions from a lot of countries to to put kit there, to put landers there, to put rovers there, eventually to put people there. Yeah, if you're a moon buff, this is a good time to be around because there are, as you say, lots of people under various different aegises trying to do this. The program that Peregrine is part of is NASA's Commercial Lunar Payload Services Plan, the CLPS. And there'll be another rocket, uh, a different rocket, a Falcon rocket, taking another sort of lander made by a different company, Intuitive Machines, onto a moon trajectory in, I think, more or less a month from today. And so there'll be another opportunity. Before that even happens, a mission that the Japanese government is running is going to try and land with really pinpoint accuracy on a very specific point on the lunar surface, just to show that they can do that. And then, in theory, there's a further astrobotic mission later this year. There's a mission by another startup running under the CLPS banner called Firefly. And the Japanese private company, which got very, very close to the lunar surface last year with a commercial mission, is going to try and fly a sister mission to that. I think it's called Resilience in the fourth quarter of this year. So there's going to be a lot of robots trying to go to the surface of the moon. It's the Americans who are taking this approach of getting private companies to try and build a sort of infrastructure for delivering stuff to the moon with NASA as their primary contract. And this is the model that's worked very successfully for developing the capacity to get cargo and later crew to the International Space Station. And is that a better way to do it? Is that a more efficient way to do it? Is that faster, safer? What what are the merits? Oh, well, it means you, you're spreading your risk, which is good, because as we see from Astrobotic, you know, missions can go wrong. So it's kind of nice that not all the missions are based on all the same hardware. You're definitely lowering your financial risk because you pay as NASA a fixed sum for the service that you're getting. And the risk then falls on the private company. But that's not really NASA's problem. What about what a lot of people would call the ultimate goal here, which is getting people back on the moon? How is that looking in in light of how things are going right now? The NASA Artemis program uses a very big, expensive rocket developed by NASA. The getting to the surface of the moon, though, is not going to be done with the NASA hardware, but it's going to be done with hardware being developed by SpaceX and, as an alternative later on, Blue Origin. And so actually getting people from orbit around the moon down to the actual moon will be done by a private company under one of these contracts. But in the long run, from the American point of view, it does look as though the moon is becoming somewhere, you know, a base for corporate operations at government behest, which is a better model than the old way. Oliver, thanks very much for your time. Hey, always a pleasure, Jason. months ago, I attended a geisha party in Asakusa, which is a traditional neighborhood in Tokyo. Moeka Iida writes about Japan for The Economist. There I met two geishas called Azuha and Seiko. Geishas are Japan's famous female entertainers, and I was really excited because this was actually my first time to see a geisha performance in real life. At first, they looked exactly how I expected them to be. Their faces were painted white, they had silky black hair, they were wearing kimonos, and they were dancing in front of a small crowd. 
they looked really elegant and beautiful. But then the mood of the gathering changed in a way that I didn't expect. The geisha started playing a drinking game with the crowd, and as part of the drinking game, the geishas would sometimes crawl on the floor like a tiger, or sometimes they would pose like an old lady with their backs hunched over and holding a walking stick. Whenever they lost to the customers, they would down a glass of beer. Azuha and Seiko were drinking a lot, and they were being really funny and playful. That was such a contrast to how they looked at first. But despite their cheerful behavior. The geisha community is going through very difficult times. Geishas have a very long lineage. They first emerged in Edo period Japan or in the 18th century. At the peak of the geisha business in the 1920s, there were around 80,000 of these female entertainers across Japan. But now there are only around a thousand, and because they're in such a dire situation, geishas have started to seriously think about their survival and reflect on their culture. So why are they in such a dire situation? As I mentioned earlier, it was my first time to go see a geisha performance, and I think I'm not really unique in that sense. A lot of Japanese people know about geishas, but they don't really have much contact with the culture. I think that's largely because we're living in a society that's modernized and westernized, and a lot of people have lost touch with traditional culture. And geishas have a lot of competitors in the service industries. In Japan, there are places called hostess bars or kabakura. These are establishments where women entertainers sit down with male clients and serve them drinks. Also, being a geisha is pretty much a full-time job. You have to live in a geisha house and practice dancing and music every day. And few people are willing to make such a commitment. So what's to be done then? What do you mean when you say that geishas are reflecting on their culture? So the COVID nineteen shutdown was a big blow for the geisha business. Their parties were cancelled and they were out of jobs. But it was also during the pandemic when we started to see a lot of interesting innovations. So some geishas launched crowdfunding projects, or others held Zoom drinking sessions, and I even saw some geishas open Western fused cocktail bars. But even before the pandemic, geishas were changing their business model. Back in the day, geisha culture was known for being very exclusive. It was targeting mostly rich and powerful men, including politicians. You could only enter geisha establishments if you're invited by someone who already has access to the place, which is a practice known as ichigen-san okotori, or first timers not allowed. They used to be very vague with their pricing as well. So when you enter a geisha party, you get a bill at the very end. And the charge would be something enormous, but these days geishas are targeting a more mixed and wider audience, which includes women and tourists. These days, you don't need an invitation to enter a geisha establishment. Geishas have also become more transparent with their pricing, so people know how much they're supposed to pay. I mean, in a lot of ways, this just sounds like an industry that's modernizing. But what does that look like on the ground? I went to Akasaka, which is another neighborhood in Tokyo. And there, I met a geisha called Shiomi Fumie. She's really passionate about keeping geisha culture alive, and she was telling me about a new project she started, which she calls Geisha Live House events. でもこうやってライブハウスとかでどんどん geisha 集を見てもらうと若い方も見るじゃないですか geisha を Usually geisha parties are long and they involve expensive meals, but Miss Shiomi decided to get rid of that and instead hold brief performances that are as cheap as 8,000 yen or around $50. She hopes that young people will come visit as well, 
And hopefully some of those young people might even consider becoming geishas themselves. Miss Shiomi is also relatively new to the business. She used to work for an IT company, but she became a geisha because she loves kimonos and traditional culture. Here she's saying you can't earn lots of money as a geisha. It's not a lucrative business anymore. But for Miss Shiomi, it's not about the money. She's saying being a geisha is very cool. But as you say, this is an extremely long tradition which seems to be changing quite quickly. Is everybody happy with that change? There are some people in the community, especially older people, who find these innovations a bit jarring or have mixed feelings about it. But if you look back at history, geisha culture has always been flexible. So as long as it's about hospitality and entertaining customers, geishas do pretty much anything. Some geishas told me how in the old days they would sit down with customers and play board games, or some of them would even play golf with the clients. And the fact that geisha culture became more open and transparent has also had the effect of dispelling a lot of misconceptions that have haunted the community for a long time. Such as? So there's this widespread belief that geishas are prostitutes, and that idea has been propagated through popular culture. As a notable example, there's a book called Memoirs of a Geisha by the American author Arthur Golden, which also became a film. But this is very representative of how geishas tend to get sensationalized or depicted in overtly sexual ways. A lot of Japanese people also used to think there's a lot of shady things going on in the geisha business, but now few people have that belief. And that's why people like Miss Shiomi and young people are entering the business. So even though geishas are in crisis, I think as long as they keep updating themselves, which is what they've always been doing, their culture will stay alive long into the future. Moeka, thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Over on Babbage, our subscriber-only sister show on science and tech, they have been snacking on lab-grown meat. It's an idea that's been around for a while, but it is inching towards being cost-effective and widely available. Economist Podcasts Plus subscribers have a bite. Everybody else, search for Economist Podcasts to learn how to sign up. And we'll see you back here tomorrow. With the highest number of young STEM graduates per capita in the EU... Ireland has the people and skills your company needs to succeed here. IDA Ireland, the National Investment Development Agency, can help you find and nurture the people you need to internationalize and thrive. Our talent is just one of the extraordinary benefits Ireland has to offer. Learn more at idaireland.com. Invest in extraordinary.